Hi there, I'm Priya Tachidi and you're listening to Talk Impact, a show that brings you inspiring stories, hard-earned insights and tips from leaders who are on the front lines of social change in Asia. So what does it feel like running a venture for 20 years? That's what our guest today, Nirmala Shankaran, has done. Nirmala, or Nimi, is the co-founder of HeyMath, a company that just turned 20 years old. Nimi went from being an academic to a banker. She was at Citibank for 11 years when the entrepreneurial bug bit her, and she's not looked back since. HeyMath was founded in 2000 before EdTech even became a hashtag. And over the last 20 years, they've implemented digital programs in over 1,000 schools and impacted more than a million students and 5,000 teachers across Singapore, India, South Africa, US, Malaysia, UAE, Tanzania, Tokyo, Colombia, and Brazil. Nimi is an entrepreneur that I admire very, very dearly. Nimi has led her company with empathy and has focused on building a culture that is open, inclusive, and completely flat. I sat down with Nimi on the sidelines of the We Rise Impact Showcase a few weeks ago, and this is our insightful, empowering conversation. Hi, Nimi. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Priya. I'm glad we were able to make this meeting happen. Welcome, welcome. So first of all, thanks again for joining us. It's a remarkable year in the midst of all that's going on. Uh, 20 years of HeyMath. What an incredible achievement. Congratulations to you. And I'm sure you've been doing a lot of reflecting. So, you know, if we were to ask you, tell us a little bit about how you made it here to this point. Thank you so much, Priya. So let me start from the very beginning. So this was in 1999, at the turn of the millennium. It was also the start of the dot-com uh, era when commercial applications of the internet were just being discovered. And India had also earned its five minutes of fame because we had solved the Y2K software issue for the whole world. At the time, I was working with uh, Citibank in London and I had already worked for 12 years in the bank and was uh, itching to do something new. And what caught my attention was the media coverage with regard to the global shortage of math teachers. And, you know, students struggle in math more than in any other subject. And there is a direct correlation to not having had access to a good math teacher at some point in their academic journey. And that's what results in learning gaps. And eventually, anxiety, fear, disinterest, hate, all of these become part of the vocabulary associated with math. So improving student outcomes in math looked like a significant problem to solve. In the beginning, it was not very clear as to what the exact solution would be, but the puzzle had three important pieces. One is good digital content, two, the internet, and third, leveraging India. So over time, the idea that emerged was, you know, what if we could digitize proven practices of the best math teachers and make it accessible via the internet to every student and every teacher globally? And what if the R&D center was based out of India? So this is, this is how the idea started taking shape. And a critical ingredient of the solution was curation of the best teaching methodologies in math. 
we knew that we had to establish academic credibility right from the start so all roads led to the university of cambridge the mecca for mathematics we knocked on their doors in 2000 and proposed a collaboration and to this day we still have that collaboration going and that was actually the birth of amath and how i stumbled into entrepreneurship now over the last 20 years priya we've impacted over a million students and 5000 teachers across singapore india south africa the us and latin america wow uh, what an incredible achievement it's just you know gives me goosebumps kind of listening to you um, and you know so many women entrepreneurs here today in the audience and i'm sure everyone is feeling really empowered just hearing that that you've made it it's a long journey but you're still standing here strong and still going so that's really great but maybe if i just ask you to kind of think back starting up was of course hard and sometimes as women entrepreneurs we are juggling many things and we're kind of wondering at what speed do we go right uh, we have like different priorities at different points uh, and sometimes and i think especially today given the pandemic a lot of women entrepreneurs are kind of reevaluating things and figuring out what is the pace that we need to set how do we really grow but to get going on that journey uh, i mean what do you think are the fundamentals that we need to really get right that can then allow us to set the speed whatever we want it to be right i think first and foremost i think entrepreneurship is the best way to discover your full potential as a human being because you know when you solve a problem that you truly care about your talent and passion comes together like nothing else and you are in your element but then also i have discovered that entrepreneurship is a emotional roller coaster because you have cycles of anxiety euphoria yeah. feelings of isolation all of it rolled into one and all of it can happen in the same day also <laughs> so you need to be mentally very tough and also there is absolutely there are no shortcuts to the old fashioned perseverance and grit if you want to build an enduring venture so these are some two very big learnings for me and i think you know pre pandemic post pandemic at any point in time i think the key building blocks still are that you have to establish product market fit and in parallel very importantly in parallel you need to figure out how you are going to grow your customer base and what will be your cost of customer acquisition often what happens is we make the mistake of falling in love with our product and don't focus enough on sales and marketing so i would say obsess about the problem you are trying to solve but don't obsess about your solution okay otherwise you miss a lot of opportunities to pivot in interesting ways if you get too hung up uh, uh, with what you have created you need to be nimble enough to fine tune it as you go along and we have learned it during the pandemic how quickly we've had to adapt and reinvent and you know pivot uh, at different points of time also don't get to the trap of over customization of your products because there is a temptation to bend backwards especially to please that initial set of customers and that is what will kill you cost wise and also lead you to a path where you're building a business that is not scalable yeah great points and i think all of this just makes a lot of sense and we've all been tested on this i think and a lot of the conversations that we've been having with the women entrepreneurs in our program is all around these pieces because there is a tendency i think especially to customize right because you really want those customers at the early yeah days. and i think you know business model wise increasingly we have to have resilience in the business model because if something is not working because some very big assumption has changed or the regulation has changed or something new has happened that's come and disrupted you should not be left hanging there high and dry so you need to think of building that resilience into the business model to be able to make those twists and turns as your challenges as your assumptions get challenged 
And another thing for me, you know, has been really important in this pandemic. And I think all leaders, all entrepreneurs have been thinking about this is really as well, the type of culture. I think uh, you kind of touched on it. I think as entrepreneurs, you go through all of that anxiety and all of those roller coaster emotions. Um, and um, like the pandemic, I think, has even pushed us further because now our whole team is working virtually, et cetera. And what kind of culture do we really set and right, what kind of values do we have? So, you know, how early should we start actually thinking about culture and values and things like that? And what has really worked for you at HeyMath? Priya, this is actually the most uh, important question and something very close to my heart. You know, it is really critical to invest a lot of bandwidth very early on in building the right organization culture. One that is, you know, rooted in strong values that you believe in and that stands the test of time. People should want to be associated with your venture. And this is one thing we really pride ourselves about a great deal about at Himath. Because one thing that we've been able to uh, create is a very collegiate atmosphere, which is very flat, absolutely no hierarchy at all, transparent. And we all have a lot of fun and we celebrate everything under the sun. I also believe that when people are connected to a purpose, which is your company's mission, and they have the autonomy to be creative, and they experience personal and professional growth, they are more likely to contribute their fullest. This is whether you work from home or whether you work face-to-face, this applies regardless. That being connected to that purpose and feeling that you are much bigger than what you can be and to realize that you have that canvas to paint on because you're given that autonomy to do it and you're given the freedom, you're given the responsibility, uh, I think, you know, plays a very important role in, in, uh, in retaining people. And at Haymat, we encourage people to bring your whole self to work. So whatever you are, whether you're good in culinary art, whether you're good in gymnastics, whether you're good in yoga, acting, bring your whole self to work. You know, don't feel that I'm doing this, therefore missing out something else. Uh, and, and that's how we've been able to find that people have actually created yoga clubs in the company. Uh, they do Zumba classes. Uh, they cook meals and they bring it together. We have potluck lunches all the time. So... We feel that when you, you know, when you operate as that one single individual and connect to the purpose of the company, then chances are that you will, uh, you know, contribute uh, to your fullest. And as a result, what I've seen over the last 20 years is we have a thriving Hemath alumni uh, and people are connected to each other across the world. Um, and it's, it's wonderful because they meet with each other, even though they're no longer part of the company, they meet with each other. They are entrepreneurs themselves. Some of them are professors. People have done really well, which I think is very, very fulfilling for me as a founder. That's really exciting to hear. I like that idea. Bring your you know, whole self. That's such a beautiful thought and really just is a testament to you as an entrepreneur and a leader. It's really, right? What a beautiful vision and you've managed to kind of deliver on that. But what is also maybe the trick to attract that kind of talent that really fits with that culture? Because I think that's one thing a lot of us are hiring, like in the virtual world, we're trying to build, you know, that first set of team of people. So what has worked for you in terms of also, you know, finding the right people who can blend with that culture or that vision that you're trying to build? Yeah. So Priya, you can get talent, you can get, uh, you know, technical expertise, uh, you can get all those uh, skills in many people. But to me, I want to hire people who don't need babysitting services. So that is the biggest waste of your time as a founder. So if someone in the company says, uh, like, you know, doesn't come to me uh, to keep, uh, you know, 
uh, checking, shall I do this? Shall I do that? What decision shall I make? Uh, shall I not do something? Um, I always tell people that, that the ones who don't come to me are the ones who are most valuable. If you keep coming to me all the time, then I'm doing your work and I really would not want to subsidize people. Okay, so first is no babysitting services. You need people with a problem-solving mindset, you know, who take ownership and can don many hats. Especially in the early stages, uh, you need to set the bar very high for this first set of recruits uh, because they are going to wear multiple hats. And, you know, so, and that's, that's very important in the early stages because you're still trying to figure out the product market fit and you're still trying to see who's going to pay for this product that you're building. And uh, you're operating with, you know, very limited resources. So you need to have people who are versatile, who, who don't, you know, think twice before showing an entrepreneurial mentality. Uh, so don't compromise on those first set of uh, people that you hire because they are the ones who will also propagate the values of your organization. And they will also be the ones who will be hiring the next set of high performers. So what I find is that if you have a very solid peer network like that, then if someone is non-performing or someone has an attitude issue or does not fit into the culture or the value system that we have created, then the organization itself will eject you. You don't need a supervisor to come and talk to that person. The peer network itself will, will say that, hey, this person is not fitting in. So I think to me, you know, hiring mistakes can be very costly. And uh, if you, and I think it's very, very important to, uh, to, to find people who know that this is an organization where you don't need to consider yourself ordinary. You can be absolutely extraordinary because you're given a canvas to paint on. You have the autonomy, you have the freedom, you have the responsibility but you also need to take ownership and just run with it. Fantastic. I think those are great insights there. I have to ask you the kind of the big question that we keep you know, grappling with as part of the VRISE Accelerator, especially, and which is really uh, what we're focusing on, access to capital. Uh, and I know that you know, we've had a lot of conversation around this. And uh, you know, the pandemic has also been a fairly difficult time to really kind of think about it. What would you say to women entrepreneurs who are maybe sitting on the fence a little bit? Uh, is there a right time? What should the approach be today, given the data that we know around you know, the gender financing gap? Uh, what is your kind of approach and advice to those who are thinking about raising capital? Yeah, so I think this uh, point of view is applies to any entrepreneur, not just women entrepreneurs. And I have actually never seen myself as a woman entrepreneur. I've seen myself as just an entrepreneur, you know. Uh, but one thing I can say is that once you have customers who are willing to pay for your product and you've met some operational targets uh, with profitable unit economics, you should be out there. You should be raising money. Don't shy away from it. A lot of people shy away from it because of losing control, because, you know, let me find you in the product a little bit more. Let me close that next deal. Uh, let me reach $5 million dollars. There are all these moving targets all the time. Uh, but I feel that if you raise money when you've proven these basic things, then that is the only way you can catalyze any further innovation and build that organization capacity to scale your business. So I would just say, don't shy away from it because once you're out there and your network automatically grows once you have the right kind of investor. Uh, who's willing to, uh, you know, play the game with you. Um, so don't try and do it all by yourself. And, and I think, you know, once you're, you can see that this repeatability of your processes, repeatability of the product 
and you're finding a pattern in terms of you've defined the kind of customers who value what you, you've, you've created because it helps them do their jobs better. Then you, it's, it's absolutely the right time to, uh, to raise money. And, and I'm glad that things are changing even in terms of the uh, gender financing gap. At least there's a very acute realization that the uh, VC community uh, or, or you know, the community where all these investment decisions are made, a lot of the uh, leadership are uh, men. And I think, I think that is something which we need to really uh, break. Uh, but, but there are enough impact funds out there, a lot of philanthropies that, that are uh, you know, very, very uh, pro-women uh, entrepreneurs and women uh, you know, leadership. Uh, because I really think the 21st century is about women. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think there's a whole movement around gender lens investing and there's a recognition that, you know, women-led businesses are giving you great returns, if not better returns. So that's really great to hear. So maybe just, you know, now that you are kind of upon 20 years, I have to kind of ask you about scaling up your model. Scaling up also means that there's so much more to learn, right? Like new challenges, new markets, you know, new expansions, probably like expanding your team significantly, fundraising, like you said, rightly so, all on the business side and as leaders is kind of keep learning on that. Maybe uh, one thing to just check in with you on is how important is it uh, to focus on building your own capability as a leader in terms of leadership skills and business skills and what has your approach been to it? See, one thing is that skills that make you a good founder they won't be sufficient when it comes to scaling your venture. In fact, a lot of your startup strengths can become liabilities when you're scaling up. So often we founders think that if we do more and more of the same thing, we'll grow. But that actually doesn't work. Because, you know, when you start up, you tend to be opportunistic and you're also quite ad hoc in the way you function. You're just literally firefighting, problem solving, and you're this superhuman being who thinks they can solve everything. But when you scale up, I think you need to have a more strategic approach. You need to focus on processes and the right organization design. Because one thing that can limit your scaling is your organization design. How are you set up? Do you have the people, the processes, uh, the capacity? Because scaling is not just about achieving top line uh, growth or increasing top line growth, but it is about building that capacity in your people, in your processes and your systems. So I think once, once you're ready to scale, I think you need to, uh, it is helpful to bring in a coach or a co-founder who can help you make that transition. And there is an element of letting go on the part of the founder. You have to let go. Because at this stage, the key thing is to accept that you might be the biggest bottleneck. And you don't need to be good at everything. No one is good at everything. That's why I think self-awareness is very, very important when you're an entrepreneur. Because that's when you realize your blind spots and your shortcomings. And you accept that what got me up to here will not take me further unless I reassess what are my strengths and in what way can I add value in the next stage of this company and stepping back on all that is required to bridge the gap between this phase and the scaling up phase. Because you might not be a good process person. You might not be good with systems. You may not like Excel sheet. You know, you may not do all those things. You may be just this evangelist and this person out there you know, do closing deals and networking and, you know, making great things happen, but you may not be the process person. So that self-awareness and that realization is important because if you don't do that, you can't build your own leadership capacity for the next phase of growth. Mm. 
That's very interesting insights. I think uh, really about building kind of the right team and, you know, the other skill sets that you may not have. So maybe specifically, if I were to ask you, how did your own role change as Hemat scaled up? And yeah. as you said, you have to start bringing in the other people, right? What was, uh, was it challenging to kind of build that team when you kind of reach that scaling stage? Yeah. See, you know, uh, I think I've, I've been wanting to do this for a few years now, actually, not, not, not just recently, but for many years now. My goal is to make myself redundant. That is the only way I give myself a chance to transform into a role that has higher impact. So one thing that you need to do when you're in this uh, building, this new organization design and uh, a capacity for scaling up is you need to take a lot of time to properly onboard new people, especially the new stars that you're recruiting who are going to now play a lot more uh, hands-on execution role. Uh, you need to onboard people. You need, you, there is no shortcut for doing that. And because if you do it properly, that will pay dividends later on. Okay. And I personally spend a lot of time mentoring individuals who show initiative, uh, versatility and, and potential for growth. And I, I've done that a lot during the pandemic, because if I didn't do that, I would be ending up doing a lot of heavy lifting, even at this stage. So I think for the, for, for the, for an organization to be resilient and for you as a leader to grow, you need to build leadership capacity at all levels in the company. And, and fortunately, because we operate pretty much like a non zero hierarchy. For me, I don't mind if it don't care whether it's a 17 year old or a 50 year old, both have leadership capacity in different forms, you know, and we've always been very multi-generational, very multicultural. And, and it's wonderful to see leadership mushrooming across the organization, vertically, horizontally, every which way, because only if you do these things properly, if you onboard properly, mentor properly, and consciously build that leadership capacity, you will only then be free to focus on unlocking the value of what you built. I hope that answers. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I was very curious to know when you said, you know, make yourself redundant, right? But I see, you know, how you really kind of have to build the organization and build that capacity all across. Yeah. We've been chatting. It's been a fabulous conversation. But before we go, uh, you know, we have a lot of women entrepreneurs here today. Um, looking back at your incredible 20 years leading here, Matt, what would be maybe uh, before last advice before you go to tell us, what would you like to share with this group of women entrepreneurs? I have a lot to share. This is again, one of my favorite topics. Uh, first of all, it's advantage women. We are in that phase now where it's advantage women, okay? Uh, so first and foremost, I think women should be confident that their ideas are ready for prime time. Don't be ambivalent. A lot of women are ambivalent about their ambition and they also undermine their accomplishments. And I think women need to unshackle themselves from vocabulary like bossy, pushy, aggressive, controlling, because all of these words are actually become self-imposed barriers that subconsciously hold you back. Also, I think women need to work on building your personal brand and talking about their work, sharing about their work authentically on social media platforms and intentionally build professional networks, deliberately build professional networks. And also it's very, very important I have learned is to build storytelling and sales skills. I think that's very important going forward. As far as women leadership is concerned, I strongly believe that 
women can be a force for good. And a testimony to that is how countries run by women have handled the COVID crisis so differently and so successfully. See, leadership in this century is relationship-centric and one of empathy, uh, collaboration, and of influence. It's not top-down anymore. And women, I think, have dispositions that make them suited for entrepreneurship and for leadership, like the ability to deal with complexity, the natural instinct to nurture, and the mindset of taking a long-term view rather than being opportunistic. So my advice to women is build a company with a double bottom line, one that is profitable and one that improves society as well. And these are called zebra ventures. I found this analogy fascinating, zebra companies. Uh, why, why, why there is this connection to zebras is that because zebras as animals, they band together in groups and that's how they protect and preserve each other. And a group of zebras uh, is called a dazzle, you know? So I think the time has come for women entrepreneurs and women leaders to dazzle. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So ladies, we know we've heard you, Nimi. <laughs> Let's dazzle. Let's rise up together. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, we really, really are proud of all of your achievements. What an inspiration for all of us. Thank you, Nimi. Thank you so much, Priya. And, and I wish you all the greatest of successes. Thank you. What an empowering conversation, right? For me, the three key takeaways from Nimi's experience is number one, <laughs> the call to action is let's dazzle. I think it's the time for women entrepreneurs. Nimi is absolutely right. And let's make our presence felt. Things that I love about uh, Nimi's approach to building her venture is the idea of bringing your whole self to work, right? The idea of bringing your whole self to work so that you actually find joy and you find a way to grow both professionally and personally and to build a culture that is open and that is built on trust and radical candor i think these this emphasis on culture has been such a core part of nimi's leadership and it's been such an inspiring listen i hope you enjoyed that and hope to see you next time